Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Project Zion podcast. I am your host, Brittany Mengelson, and we have for you today another episode in our Chai Can't Even series, which is our series where we interview millennials and young adults in the church. And today we are going to be interviewing Zach Harmon McLaughlin, uh, who, Zach, have we had you on the podcast before? Yeah, a couple times. That's what I, yeah, I was thinking we have, but I don't think I've interviewed you. So welcome. <laughs> I'm really excited. No, yeah, you, you have not. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be good. Um, so let's just dive right on into this. And I think I know the answer to some of these questions, but our listeners might not. So I'm curious about your childhood and youth and growing up in Community of Christ. So did you grow up Community of Christ? What was your childhood like? Did you attend camps? Uh, just that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it all started on a warm, humid July evening back in 1985. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I was born in July in 1985. So um, yes, I did. I did grow up Community of Christ or, you know, when I was a kid, we were still RLDS. Um, and I had a pretty status quo um, church upbringing, sort of. Um, the kind of caveat there was both of my parents were employees of the church growing up. And so um, from a really early age, we church was not just like part of our life. Church was our life. So I think growing up, I ate more dinners in a church building than I did in my own home. Um, like, for example, I never had a birthday uh, at home ever. I still haven't actually. I've always I've always been in a summer camp or a reunion or you know traveling somewhere. So um, and my birthday is right in the middle of the summer. So that was just part of life growing up. And so I was always a camp brat because my parents were youth ministers. My mom was a youth minister. Uh, I have an older brother and an older sister. And so you know life was church and church was life. There really wasn't any separation. And, you know, for me as a kid, Sunday church was not just Sunday morning. It it went from 8 a.m. till 8 p.m. You know, it was an all day uh, experience. And I actually often now I yearn for those types of experiences where it is a fullness of a day in sacred community. Um, so, uh, and we don't really do that too often. I mean, it totally depends on where you're at, uh, located geographically in the church and the, the specific church culture. Uh, but anyway, um, so I had a pretty normal childhood. Um, I did grow up Community of Christ, but that is not to say that I did not wander or doubt or uh, question my my faith identity as a Community of Christ person. So um I don't know how much you want me to get into this, but I'll just go ahead and dive into it because you can edit it out later. When I was about 13 years old, I started playing the drums for a church plant in Independence called Seekers. It's now known as the Open Arms Congregation in Independence, Missouri. Uh, at the time, it was brand new. It was this kind of new thing. And I started playing the drums. Long story short, 
that put me in contact with a bunch of musicians. And so around the age of like 14 to 16, I started playing music a lot. Every Friday night, every Saturday, every Sunday morning. And on Sunday mornings, I would often play at a Lutheran church, a Methodist church, and a Baptist church um, and play, you know, different timed services. Um, So I started getting exposed to different faiths and different perspectives pretty early on. And that was at the same time I had my first faith crisis where I kind of proclaimed in a fairly public way that I didn't believe in God. Um, And so, you know, during that whole time, I was trying to figure out who, who I was in terms of faith and did I want to be a part of what I lovingly describe as a, a kooky, weird, um, unique denomination, or did I want to be part of something that was pretty mainstream and, and pretty normal? And I grew up with a lot of Baptist friends, a lot of Methodist friends, and so I often would do stuff with their youth groups as a kid. So um, anyway, so yeah, that's probably more than you wanted to know, but I I have been a member of the church my entire life and have generally participated. Although one thing I love to say, which actually comes from uh, a good Catholic friend of Katie and ours, uh, is I I like the phrase um, being a practicing protesting church member sometimes, which, which all that means is I, I love the community of Christ and it's, you know, obviously my home, but I think it's important as disciples that we always have the capacity to um, lovingly protest and you know, urge our denomination to move in the way of Jesus. So sometimes I've found myself in that place too. I really appreciate that. Uh, That being a disciple doesn't necessarily mean that you're passive and that you are excited about everything within your denomination, but that the call to discipleship is the call to sometimes protest. I like that a lot. So when you were a kid, having two parents that were employees, um, and I don't know, I don't know if you mentioned this, but did you grow up then in independence? Yeah. Okay. I didn't mention that. Yes, I did. I grew up um, not too far from the temple as a kid. Okay. So I don't want to like lead you in and give you the answer that I'm looking for because I'm not necessarily looking for an answer, but I'm wondering about the pressure as a kid growing up you know, we often talk about like the preacher's kids, uh, but in independence with two parents that are both employees, did you feel pressure to kind of look the part or talk the part or uh, any of that? Yeah. You know, independence is kind of a unique place in that regard. My best friends growing up were apostles kids and first presidency kids. And um, when I was a a young kid, uh, world church leadership, used to have uh, pizza Wednesdays where all the, the council of 12 and the first presidency would gather for like pizza and conversation. And a lot of us kids, uh, not that my parents were part of world church leadership, but I was, you know, really close with their kids. And so I would often, you know, be in that, that community. And as a kid, you know, I never, I never even thought twice about being in the same room as an apostle or, or one of the presidency of our church, it was just kind of a really normal thing growing up. Um, so it, it is a unique place. And, and even as a kid, my congregation merged with another congregation and we built a building and I was 
probably, I don't know, 12, 13. It was right around junior high school. And so for two years, I, I went to church in the auditorium. That's where we gathered for church while our congregation was being built. And so, um, you know, this space of independence, our, our sacred sites are, you know, were just part of my narrative as a child. Um, which I realized for some people, you know, it was like, whoa, that's crazy. And for me, I, you know, I never really thought about it until I started traveling more and I, I became a little older. So um, in terms of identity, you know, I worked really hard once I, once I kind of be, had an identity as a minister, which, so I started preaching. My first sermon was at Stone Church when I was 15 years old and and so at that point, when I started kind of identifying as a minister, um, I worked really hard to not be in my parents' shadow and to have my own identity as Zach and not Don and Carol McLaughlin. Um, and so, you know, I never felt, I, <laughs> I don't know, I don't want to offend any listeners or anything, but I've just, I've never been a rule follower and I've never... I've never liked being told what to do or how to do it. Um, and I've always just kind of had a, a natural rebellious part of myself. And so um, I think from a really early age, I, I tried to forge a path of, you know, my own identity and, and trying to be true to my sense of integrity uh, and the, my own sense of call. And so I, I, I perhaps I did feel pressure. Um, but I really rebelled against that. In fact, I could share stories about, uh, you know, well, I'm not going to share those stories on podcast. I'm sorry. But, you know, that every institution has its uh, status quo expectations. And when those are, you know, sometimes challenged or, or perhaps someone doesn't conform to those, it always creates a sense of, of uh, tension or frustration or, or whatever it may be. And, I think I found myself sometimes naturally in those situations, <laughs> so which is okay. Yeah, it is okay, and I it it brings me to the question of at the same time where you're trying to figure out your own identity, maybe push some institutional boundaries, etc. Did you were you able to still find mentorship through? leaders and through confidants and um, maybe your parents or your parents' peers? Uh, you know, what did, what did that look like? The support of the generation older than you? Yeah, well, that's, you know, this is one of the things I think that is one of the greatest strengths of Community of Christ. And, you know, when you ask the question to people like, what is your favorite enduring principle? It, it's been my experience that a lot of times people go to like the, the heavy hitters, right? Worth of all people, sacredness of creation, um, all are called, you know, the, the, the big stuff. My favorite is unity and diversity. Our, our, the community of Christ is this, is this unique place where you have this vast cornucopia of perspective and tradition that all somehow meet in Christ's peace. Um, and sometimes it's really sloppy and messy and other times it's really beautiful and seamless. Um, but that was, you know, as a kid, anytime I found myself uh, really feeling like maybe I don't belong because I'm too much of a radical or I'm too much of a rebel, I was always lovingly embraced by these incredible people who did mentor me, 
who did hold my hand, who, who did encourage me as a leader from a very young age, um, remind me, hey, Zach, you are called here. You belong here. You have work to do here. You're part of this community, which I think always challenged my interior narrative of, you know, being rebellious and, and being anti-authoritarian of how can it be that I continue to push boundaries and I continue to rock the boat and rather than being told, okay, you need to get off the boat now, you've made it too rocky, we, we love you, but you got to go, I was always met with, you belong here, we love you, you matter, um, which to this day is just heartwarming to know that, you know, I always had people my whole life, even in the the poor decisions I've made or the silly things I've said flippantly or hyperbolically, who have loved me and reminded me of what it means to be a good leader, who have reminded me of what it means to be called um, into community. And so I think that's one of the, the greatest gifts of our denomination is that it's not black and white in terms of here's the rule, here's the doctrine, and you need to fall in line. But it's it's these fuzzy edges that are not met with harsh realities, but met with warm kindness. And um, so, yeah, I've I've always found myself in the company and and companionship of people who love me. And just a a quick story of that, like when I was eighteen, eighteen through like twenty one, when I was when I was in college, I had this dream of, of having a church plant. And uh, there were a lot of things I didn't know, but I would call up Bob Kaiser, who at the time was the senior president of 70, and Linda Booth, um, who was the apostle for our area. And and I they would take me out to lunch and listen to these crazy dreams I had and these silly ideas I had. And I remember one time I, I sat them down and I was like, I need $300,000 that I can do this thing. And, and never once did they ever say, Zach, you're nuts. You need to pump the brakes. Like, like this is crazy. They took this 18-year-old crazy kid and they were like, man, these are awesome ideas. How can we make this happen? That sounds so great. We love you. And I'm just, I look back at that now and I want to be like that. I want to know that I would have the same amount of compassion and courage to sit down with an 18 year old who says crazy things and acts a bit goofy or immature, but that I sit down with them seriously and I'm like, man, you have great ideas. Wow, you're a good leader. Man, do you belong here. And so it, I, I could share story after story of moments kind of like that, that, that people just kept nurturing me and loving me um, in the midst of a, of a lot of silliness. I was a pretty rambunctious <laughs> youth and child and um, to be met with such compassion and love is life transforming for sure. Well, and I think that not everybody gets that. You know, a lot of people, mm -hmm. they go to leadership, whether it's church leadership or in their job or even in their community, you know, wh whatever it may be, um, with some sort of vision. And how often do we just shoot each other's <laughs> visions down? And our the, the enthusiasm that we bring to them, you know, yes. I think that that's 
it's so unfortunate when I see somebody get really excited about an idea and then it's just met with a brick wall and there's no way to bust through that at all. Uh, so it sounds like you were really supported, even though maybe you probably weren't handed a $300,000 check. But... <laughs> right. I wasn't. And let me just say, like, I, I have those same, like, I have those failures as a leader, right? Where I have unintentionally or sometimes intentionally taken the wind out of someone's sails. And I think it's, but it's those moments. And I'm, I'm fully aware that not everyone has those moments of grace in their life. But I think that's what now, you know, particularly in the roles of leadership, I found myself in as a mission center president, the director of the seminary, like, I, I strive to be that though, right? Like, that ultimately, what what gives birth to the kingdom of God is hope and grace and possibility, not dismissal or diminishment or, you know, rigidity. So I I do, I am sensitive to my, my own uh, sort of privilege in terms of the experiences I've had, but, but I also, I think it's shaped me in how I lead or, or how I try to be a minister in the world. For sure. Yeah, I think it's a good goal to have as a leader, uh, but a difficult one. I mean, I, as you were talking, could think of a few moments where I have, I think, taken the wind out of some people's sails. Um, and then there's times where I feel like my wind has been taken out of my sails. So I mean, we're all, right. we're all guilty of it. We've all had it happen to us. Uh, but it's a good goal to reach, you know, it's a, it's a good goal to reach for that we can support each other in the wild and rambunctious visions that we have for God's kingdom here on earth. So, Amen. so it sounds like you were interested in being involved with church from a pretty young age. I mean, if you had these grand ideas at 18, um, I'm assuming that you had some sort of vision for yourself and your place in the church. Can you, I guess, share about that sense of call to ministry, whatever that looked like, whether it be a call to priesthood, or did you want to work for the church, or did you want to go to seminary? Um, What was, how much involvement did you want to have within Community of Christ? Yeah, that's a super complex question. Um, And this is one of those places where I may, may share too much. So if you want to just cut me off at some point. Feel free to do that. Um, so I mentioned earlier how I, you know, I kind of went through one of first of, of many faith crises I've had uh, where I kind of didn't believe in God. After that experience of kind of proclaiming that in front of a whole large camp in independence of, you know, when your parents are the youth ministers and you stand up in front of 200 junior high uh, youth and say, I don't believe in God, um, you know, that doesn't go over too well, um, at least has been my experience. So following that, um, I had a really transformative experience with God where uh, I noticed God not as someone or something, some other place, but I noticed God fully present within me, around me, and in all things um, and I won't share the details of that simply for time, but uh, it it literally changed the way I, I thought about life in the world. 
Um, and so that was right around 14, 15. And, and when that experience happened, I simply could not keep it inside, which is why I was invited to start preaching because all I wanted to do was share this self-revelation that God is with us. This idea that totally blew my mind that my whole life I had been told, you know, I had had the impression that God was somewhere else and that we did all these things to somehow get to God or whatever. And for the first time in my life as a 14-year-old, uh, 15, however old I was, like, I could not keep that inside. I wanted everyone to know God is here. God is now. That the resurrection is a real thing, not in terms of, you know, the, the physical realities of that, but in terms of the living Christ is here. Like, this is a thing, and it's life-altering. Um, and so I started preaching all the time just because anyone who would listen to me, I wanted to share, you know, this good news. And so at that time, yeah, I kind of, I, I think I did have my, my kind of mindset in terms of, I think I want to be a minister. Now, when I was about 18 years old, just about to leave high school, um, a leader in our church uh, approached me and said, you, you have a priesthood call. Uh, and this is not an unfamiliar story, unfortunately, but you have a priesthood call, but you don't give money to the church. And so you, you maybe can't have that call. Um, so at the time, you know, I, I shared how I'm rebellious and I don't like being told what to do. And so at the time I was like, well, check this out. I'm going to be the first apostle ever to not be ordained and deal with that. I, I didn't realize that being an apostle was an ordained office. I thought it was just a job. And so, you know, I, I was like on this crusade of I'm going to work for the church and not be an ordained, you know, minister in the priesthood and I'll show them. Um, long story short, a few years after that, two or three years after that in college, the campus minister, Dave Hines at Graceland um, asked me to go for a walk around the lake. And, and Dave knew my story. He knew that I, I didn't like certain parts of the priesthood. In fact, my whole my whole master's thesis is on priesthood reformation and transformation. So I've got a lot of, a lot of thoughts and baggage with the priesthood. Um, don't misunderstand me. I love the priesthood. I just have a lot of thoughts on. Um, so Dave knew the story. And so he took me on this walk and he was like, you know, I want to I share with you um, a priesthood call. But the way he shared it, he framed it in this way. And, he, and I'll never forget the words he shared because he, he said, this isn't a call for you to participate in. It is a call for you to redefine. Um, which for a rebellious anti-authority authority person, that's an invitation. <laughs> that's, a, that's a real opportunity. So I, then I, so I was called to the office of elder. I was ordained to that office. And it was at that point I, I pretty much did know that I wanted to work for the church at that time, though, I was really interested, not just at that time, I still am, really interested in, in peace and justice um, and, and changing the world. Um, I had traveled a little bit to Central America, Europe, uh, South America, uh, Mexico. So I, I was really interested in traveling and, and, and having more of a global perspective than a U.S. perspective. Uh, and so the, the last kind of story I'll share about getting me into employment with community of Christ or wanting to be a full-time minister. I went to, I went on world service court of Zambia, Africa. And that 
experience, uh, you know, totally changed my life. And I'll never forget one day, I, Africa is a, is a super amazing place to be. And, and anyone who has been there will tell you that, that it naturally changes you because it's such a radically different culture than the U.S. Um, so I was, as much as I loved it, I was kind of struggling because it was 10 weeks in Zambia in a, a village called Kashikishi, no electricity, no water in the house we were staying. So it was, it was just hard. It was challenging. There were lots of challenges uh, to be part of it. And I remember one day I, I just needed a break. So I went out into this field and I was, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I was about to be a senior in college. I knew I wanted to work for the church, but I, I didn't know if that was going to work or, or where or how. And I wanted to go out into a different country and change the world. And I remember so clearly feeling these words just pressed on my heart of Zach, change the middle class American church and you'll change the world. And that doesn't, I don't share that as like a critique of middle class America as much as I, I share that as a sense of call to those with power and privilege and, and capacity in the world that hoard wealth um, and opportunity um, often unintentionally diminish others opportunity. And so I began to learn about this radical Jesus that called us outside of our walls, that called us outside of our norms, that challenged our own status quo, that really called us to, you know, change the world. And, and the thought was if middle-class America could be Jesus, we could abolish poverty and end suffering. We could we could do these things that seem impossible if we're willing to to live into our identity as a community of Christ. And and you know now these words are are you know just they they smack us in the face in section one sixty four at the very end. You know when our willingness to be spiritually and relationally transformed. Um, so anyway, that moment kind of, I remember feeling those words and thinking, but I don't want to work in the U.S. I want to work here in Africa. I want to work, you know, in Central America. But having this deep sense of call to go help the church become the church, be the church. And so um, that's when I really decided to come back in the States. And I, I got really involved, am really involved in ecumenical and interfaith advocacy. Um, I try to travel to D.C. as often as possible to lobby for peace. Um, and I represent Community of Christ as, uh on the Church World Service member board, which is the essentially the social justice arm of National Council of Churches. Um, and, and that's actually why I continued my education through seminary and now am finishing my doctorate was, was really so that I could have the credentials to be at certain tables of a policy decision or action to help bring the kingdom of God near um, here and now. And so I have always known that I wanted to work for the church from a pretty early age, but I've also always known that working for the church doesn't always mean getting a paycheck from community of Christ that working for the church could look like working for a local nonprofit that's engaging and changing its local community or working for the church could look like um, working in politics and advocating for a better world. So uh, I've had kind of an open 
understanding of that and willingness to, at the end of the day, I'm interested in the kingdom of God here and now. I think that's a really important distinction that you give. Uh, and, and one that I have heard from several people that I've interviewed for our Chai Can't Even series, uh, people want meaningful work. And so to have something that you can do in your nine to five job uh, that engages with our identity message, mission, and beliefs, whether that's you getting a paycheck from the church or not, is really important to our generation. And we want to feel like we're making a difference and not just wasting away punching time cards and, you know, doing that kind of thing, which is all like, that can also be meaningful, Um, you know, more remedial work, not remedial work. What do I want to say there? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it can really, it can be anything, right? Like, intention and authenticity define define the power we put into the world so like even the painter or the plumber who go into homes that sometimes can be you know ripe with chaos or crisis or hardship for someone who is a deacon who is a painter by trade and that is their job for them to walk into those situations with with grace and love with uh, peace and compassion you know, you could make a strong argument that you are doing the work of community of Christ right there, right then, you know. And so uh, it's not it's not remedial, but it's intention. It's authenticity in terms of how do we show up and what do we bring um, and, and how are we going to make the world a better place and, and all of its capacities and complexities. Yeah. And it's holistic, you know, and I I think that that's maybe the opposite, whatever the opposite of holistic is, is the word I was looking for. But uh, this idea that we want the work that we bring to actually matter and that we want to be present, you know, we want to be present in the world, um, really engaged with humanity. Uh, That's just the message that I hear from millennials over and over and over again. So I totally understand what you mean. Working for the church doesn't always mean getting a paycheck for the church. I I really like the way that you phrase that. Which it should be noted, I don't get a paycheck from the church anymore. This is true. Yeah, you technically don't work, quote unquote, for the church, (laughs) being the director of the seminary. (laughs) So, again, this might seem like an obvious question, or you might feel like this is an obvious answer that you're about to give, but what do you think are the benefits of a religious community in society today? If church is starting to look different, uh, if we can show up and be present and be the face and hands and feet of God in society without necessarily sitting in a pew, what is the purpose of community? And is there a purpose of sitting in a pew? Um, Yeah, I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, man. So (laughs) I'm actually, this is what I'm writing my dissertation on right this very moment uh, is it's actually the title of my dissertation is called post-church ecclesiology um, for listeners out there who don't know what the, the word ecclesiology means. Uh, it is basically the study of the church. Ecclesia is the Greek word for the church, which means the body or, or the people. Um, uh, so this is a fascinating question. I'm not sure there's like a, one clear answer. So, but let's, so let's start here. Um, One of the reasons I took the job I'm currently in as the director of the seminary, 
because I hear often, you know, people asking the question, what's the purpose of the church? More important, or also to that, what's the purpose of religious education? I don't need, I don't need to study scripture. I don't need to understand theology. I don't need, I don't need that stuff um, because it's irrelevant to my life. Anytime we turn on the news, anytime, you know, we pay attention to, to global acts of injustice, nine times out of 10, the majority of the world's violence, oppression, marginalization happens at the hands of irresponsible, inappropriate religious interpretation. Um, so you have people who have become uh, radicalized or have uh, extremist beliefs proclaiming them as norms or trying to push a narrative that makes them normal. And, you know, you end up with violent, oppressive situations in the world, um, which is why having healthy and responsible uh, opportunity to study and learn scripture, theology, uh, belief systems, and identities is so helpful because that is the starting place of challenging uh, narratives of, all, all Muslims want to kill Christians. No, that's inaccurate. That's irresponsible. Um, and so when, when we go through a proper study of that, we can actually have those conversations and say, here is an appropriate um, way to understand that, or here's the information that, that helps us see clearly. So that's, I think, a place to start. But then in terms of sacred community, you know, I'm in the middle of research on this, and I'm I'm learning some just fascinating things, but I think I think the real place for church now the the function and form of church will and is changing, and I'm not sure. You know, when we read Acts two, we we learn pretty quickly that there were no buildings, there was no form of ritual. They broke bread and ate it with glad hearts and showed up to say, hey, this is where God is in my life. And, you know, they shared vulnerably with one another. When we look at what's happening now, people are seeking belonging. They're, they're searching for a place where they recognize and are met with recognition that they matter. Simply because you are, you matter and you belong here with us. Now, that's really complicated, and there's a whole lot of variables that go into that. But, um, you know, as I, as I do this research, that's the one thing that continues to, to rise to the surface is people are sharing this idea of, I want a place where I belong. And what that equals is vulnerability, authenticity, and intention. Um, when those three things are put into a mix, they, they create belonging. When we're in communities that are vulnerable, communities that are authentic, and communities that have intention put behind them. Um, and really, now this is a theological claim that I'm not sure we want to go down this rabbit hole, but I'm going to throw it out there <laughs> for you. I am more and more convinced that salvation is belonging that our salvation in Jesus Christ is our understanding uh, just through the prayer of Jesus in John 17, as he reminds us in John 14, 15, 
uh, even John 1, and we could go through more Gospels uh, that are evidence of this, this idea that I am in you, may you be in me, just as God has loved me, so may we love one another. Um, and reiterated in our own scripture, in their welfare resides our welfare. Uh, Paul shares this in Corinthians and Galatians, you know, when one suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. We're all one in Christ. We're all one in Christ. We're all one in Christ. This, this thing that is beat on repeat throughout scripture, perhaps our eternal life rests in the understanding that we are one that our belonging to one another is our awareness of salvation. It is this, this idea that if we can live in that sense of harmony, perhaps the kingdom of God is right in front of us. Um, that our, our own individuality in terms of us versus them or you and me is just a construct to keep us separate. Um, and anyway, I, that's, that takes some theological unpacking, and I know that that is probably, uh, could be a little shocking to some people, but um, I, I really do think that the work of the church, the body of the church, is meant to function in terms of belonging. And so as particularly Western countries go through this kind of uh, social awakening of Christianity and faith. I really think the form of church is not, and, and we need to be cautious here. So let me kind of rabbit hole jump for a second. We say church a lot and we don't mean it. Um, when I say, when I say, and I'm a 70 in community of Christ. So when I say I'm going to invite somebody to church, that's not really what I'm saying. What I'm really saying is I'm going to invite somebody to worship, which is part of church, but that's not all of church. So we scapegoat worship as church all the time because we often will just pigeonhole and say, well, church is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. No, worship is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, and that's part of who the church is, but that's not church. That's just one, one you know, cog in the wheel. Um, if I was authentic and saying, I'm going to invite somebody to church, what I'm inviting them to is whole life belonging. I'm inviting them into this community that, that brings them in and says, you matter, you're part of my life now. And just like in Acts 2, I'm going to invite you in my home. We're going to break bread with glad hearts, and we're going to be in awe of the spirit of God that resides in you, that resides in me, that resides in all things, and we're going to be in awe of it. That's church, and that takes a lot more work than a prelude, an invocation, a message, a benediction, and a postlude. And I'm not trying to dismiss Sunday morning church. I love Sunday morning church, but it's not church. It's just a part of church. So, um, And I think millennials in particular, our generation, is challenging that narrative, and we're pushing back and saying, you know, in reality— I want to be a part of a sacred community that, that challenges me, that provokes me, that's engaged in the community. But above all, I want a place where the people are vulnerable, where they're authentic, where there's a sense of intention. It's not just going through the same motions of the same stuff, but we're gathering with purpose, with focus, with intention. All of that creates a space where I feel like I belong. Um, and that's not to say that it's all about me 
it's all about what I want, but it is to say that it's a space where because I, I have a sense of belonging, you know, my armor is off and I'm willing to have conversations I otherwise probably wouldn't be willing to have, or I'm willing to think about things that otherwise I wouldn't be willing to think about. So um, that's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but I could talk about this subject in particular for a long time. I'm almost tempted to have you back on the podcast to just talk about this one subject uh, because it fascinates me. I mean, I did my undergrad in sociology and um, realizing how important social communities are to the greater health of the society, uh, to the world, uh, is something that's really important to me. And I think that you kind of nailed it when you brought up all those examples in scripture about you know, my welfare resides in your welfare and that we belong to one, one another and that our salvation really is so intertwined into the salvation of each other and of the planet and of all creation. And I also think that that's a pretty widely accepted universal truth that, you know, spans beyond Christianity, spans beyond the Western world for sure. Um, and so keeping that in mind, of the whys we do church, whether it's worship or whether it's camps, whether it's this corporate idea of church or whether it's uh, meeting God in the face of other people. Um, I, I just always like to have that kind of in the back of my mind because it, mm-hmm. it invites me into uncomfortable spaces and into uncomfortable conversations that, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been willing to go into those places, but because I'm learning and I'm not perfect, but because I'm learning uh, to really meet people where they're at and to understand that, yeah, like I said, their salvation is tied in with mine. And so as much as I want to belong in this community, uh, they want to belong here as well. So it, it shifts the entire way that I personally have interacted with the world, really, yes. which sounds really dramatic, but... <laughs> No, it, it doesn't. You know, and, and you're reminding me, we should know while people are walking away from worship, they are not walking away from church. They are not walking away from God. They're walking away from a a process that they no longer feel like they belong to. Um, it's not something that gives life. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've heard over and over again in my research is uh, the phrase family, um, that my church community was my family. Uh, and, and so when you think of it in terms of that way, what's really ironic is because we define church as worship, we show up with our family where we want to be vulnerable. We want to hear what's going on in each other's lives. So we show up to be together and then we sit and don't talk to each other for a couple hours. And then we go home. And it's like, wait a minute, how, if, if this is our family, if these are the core relationships of our soul, why would we, it's like, it's like, you know, trying to get to know someone. And so you're like, I really want to get to know you. We should go to a movie. We're not going to talk, you know, we're not going to talk. I'm not going to get to know you, but Hey, we're going to be at this movie together. Um, so that'll be fun. But you know, that it's, it's just really interesting to me there, you know, that, that people aren't, they're not walking away from what we think we're walking away from. And, and they're not, you know, people aren't these, these bad people who just, you know, hate everything or, or anything like that. They're just, they're simply searching for places of meaning and belonging. So um, anyway, yeah, I could 
I could go on, but I digress. So I, I want to hear how this relates to community of Christ. So yeah. I guess the question would be what keeps you active and involved in community of Christ? You now have a wife who is engaged with church employment and you're raising a daughter in the community. Uh, so what is it about community of Christ, I guess, specifically that you see as part of the kingdom of God? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not Sunday morning worship. Um, as much as that has meaning for me in my life and, and I, you know, I'm an active participant in church. So I show up all the time. I participate all the time. But you know, the places that, that have the most meaning for me that keep me engaged, that, that draw me deeper into the mystery of God. It is when I sit down to break bread at a meal with disciples of the community of Christ. When I'm in someone's home or when they're in my home um, and there is no agenda, there is no bulletin, there is no business to be had, there's no, you know, calling to order or adjourning. It is simply showing up for one another, paying attention, listening, diving into our own vulnerability uh, of being present with one another. Those are the moments that feed me, that, that give me deep hope. And I am... I am more and more and more convinced that the scripture from Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered, so there am I, that the world will change not through, you know, mega churches or congregations of a hundred people, but that the kingdom of God is given life when just a handful uh, of people gather authentically. Um, to proclaim the good news, what's what's going on in their life and in their community. Uh, and, and as a mission center president in California, you know, I would have to remind congregations all the time, you know, who were like, gosh, there's only 15 of us. There's only, you know, 10 of us. We're, we're dying. We're dying. And I'm like, according to who? You know, Jesus's marker of success was two and you're at 10. So you're like five times greater than Jesus's marker of success. You're doing amazing. Like you've, you've exceeded Jesus's expectations for what God can do with you because Jesus only needed two or three and you've got 10. So what in the world are you talking about in terms of you suck? And, you know, I often will joke, like the church thinks we're better than Jesus because we say you need six, but Jesus says you need two or three. So, um, and and I, I say that jokingly, but, you know, it's a reminder that God God's idea of of success and hope is different than United States of American America institutions idea of success. Um, the two are not compatible often. Uh, and so what gives me, you know, what keeps me engaged, what what gives me deep hope is this reality that even even though sometimes our our institutional identity can seem shaky, like, oh, we don't, we don't have money, or, you know, our congregations are shrinking, or this is changing, or that is changing. I'm reminded that part of being a prophetic church is not listening to the wisdom of society, but listening to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, um, which often does not play by the rules of the world, which often does not speak the same language as contemporary society or culture, 
Um, and so I, I stay connected, you know, because I think this church, this, this movement is no better or worse than any other denomination or movement in my opinion. Um, but it is, it is uniquely positioned in the world to authentically and intentionally respond to the movement of God in a way that many other movements and denominations simply can't uh, due to polity or policy or institutional structures and systems. Um, And we have such a capacity for freedom uh, and innovation. Uh, It's exciting and it's amazing. I mean, this, here's your anecdote, right? I am 33 years old and I am the director of a denominational theological institution. How is that a thing? I will tell you that doesn't happen in a Methodist world or a Mormon world or a Catholic world. That doesn't happen. And here I am like, that's innovative. That's radical. That's risky. That's prophetic and transformational. And, and that's what keeps calling me in and deeper. And it's, and honestly, Brittany, it's become less linear and it's become much more of a movement, uh, into the deep. I relate to everything you just said. Uh, sometimes I will get questions about the quote unquote success of what we call Latter-day Seeker ministry, a uh, ministry with Mormons who are leaving the LDS church and finding refuge to one degree or another in community of Christ. And when people ask about the success, I think they're wanting numbers. I mean, we're kind of a data-driven society and we want to know, is this worth it? Are our resources, is the energy worth it? Um, Show me the numbers in very black and white, you know, measurable terms, which I mean, I like a good statistic as well as the next person. Uh, But how do you put into words the amount of women who have been empowered to then go back to school and get an education and start a career because they have left a culture that told them that that was selfish? Or how do you quantify um, the LGBTQ person who finally feels that they are loved by God just for who they are? You know, I mean, I don't care if these people are baptized confirmed members when their lives are being completely transformed. And so to try to, um, I don't know, verbalize the community of Christ's importance in that journey for the individual. And then when you start stacking a lot of individuals, um, stories on top of each other, I mean, it's the transformation is overwhelming, but then to try to justify that or, uh, to say that, you know, this is that, that this is, um, a quote unquote success is really difficult. And when people are hurt that their congregations are closing or they're concerned about the future um, and and you see so much life and so much uh, transformation, it's really, it it calls us to really re-examine what it means to be a disciple. And I know that uh, in a recent podcast that we just had, um, Carla mentioned, you know, the scripture, do not be concerned with numbers and that sometimes we can get so focused on the numbers and the growth and the success that's very corporate. Uh, But the reality is, is our success is happening with transformed lives in ways that we can't begin to just put on paper. Well, you know, just a side note here, like the radical core idea of community of Christ is that 
the mission of community of Christ has nothing to do with community of Christ. Hmm. Like our ultimate hope for the world has nothing to do with our own institutional agenda. Like, and that's crazy. What that says is our ultimate success. If we're successful disciples of Jesus Christ, then the community of Christ ceased to exist because it's not, it's not, (laughs) it's not the focus of the kingdom of God. Like, and that is a radical notion. Like in the business world in a capitalist society, that doesn't, that doesn't equip because you don't, you don't make money doing that. You don't, you don't grow doing that. You don't all those different, you know, data points, which again, just like you don't get me wrong. I love data. And as someone who, you know, runs an, an institution or even as a mission center president, like you need to know all the, the factors in your organization to make it successful. But um, at the end of the day, like to be a disciple of Jesus, it's not about institutional growth. It's about proclaiming the good news. Um, And you can't, when you cast seed, you don't know what happens as a gardener. All you can do is nurture it. You can water it. You can tend it. You can love it. But at the end of the day, the plant has to do its own work. Like all you're there to do is try to protect and love and grow that garden. But it's a mutual relationship. It's not just a one-way street. So, yeah, I love that. It's radical. It's not normal. It's not the norm in our world. No, it really isn't. And I I mean, ugh, I feel like I could go on a million tangents on this, but I think that that's one reason why, um, at least in the ministry that I'm involved with, people are kind of tentative to check us out sometime because they expect what they have gotten from churches before, you know, they expect that there's going to be some, uh, bait and switch, you know, but then once you get them in, then that's when we're going to turn it on you and surprise we're just like all the other guys. And uh, yeah, it's, it can be scary to, to be that vulnerable and to just let go and surrender to an institution because I mean, we are still an institution. Um, yeah, absolutely. And we get dinged on that all the time. Right. And again, as a 70, like, why don't we proselytize more? Why don't we, you know, we're like, we're like the shy kid on the playground. Who's like, well, you don't have to talk to me if you don't want, but if you want, I'm really nice. But you know, at the end of the day, like part, part of us is, is this idea that we're not the ones driving. God is, we are a prophetic church. Our, our first step is listening, not speaking. And that's not normal. <laughs> you know, most of the time, like in the world, it is, let me stand up and whoever shouts the loudest gets the megaphone. But community of Christ is like, you know what, we're going to, we're going to listen. What's going on here? What is God inviting us to? Um, and that's not a passive act. It's a prophetic act. And that's, that's different. Uh, it's so you ask why I stay. It's because I believe that we are a prophetic church. I believe that I am part of a prophetic people. I believe that that God continues to move in us and move through us and with us. Um, and while I do not believe that I am the center of that at all, I do believe that I'm holding hands with with all the disciples in this community as we try to listen um, to who God is calling us to be. And that's, that's another unique part of who we are is that everybody has a voice here. 
that makes for complicated conversations because we don't, we don't rarely, if ever, do we kick you out. We invite you into the conversation and um, that makes it really hard when you have, when you have, you know, radical Democrats and radical Republicans both sitting down to break bread and take communion together and talk about issues of cohabitation and, and alcohol and LGBTQ plus issues and abortion and gun rights. And those things happen in communion Christ with people from a spectrum. And I'm just here to tell you that doesn't happen everywhere. We form communities of like-mindedness and communities where we feel like, you know, everybody thinks the same as us. Journey to your nearest community of Christ congregation, and you will find a community that, sure, has some people who think the same way. But I guarantee if you ask the question on any current topic of what do you all think about this, you're going to get a hundred different answers um, anywhere you visit. So It's true. And that, I think, is one of the Uh, points of discomfort that I was kind of referencing earlier that recognizing that just because I have an opinion about something or I have a belief about something or I have even a value, it could be something as deep as a value, recognizing that the person next to me in the pew probably does not share my exact views and that that's okay. And that I can still find God in their life, in their ministry. Um, I can still accept them for who they are uh, as as a whole, uh, and that I would hope that that grace would be extended to me. Amen. And do you want to know why this gets yeah. back? To, this is full circle now, Brittany. This is why, because in Commune of Christ, there is an idea of belonging. That that person who does not agree with you, who thinks differently than you, in their welfare resides your own. That they are part of the body of Christ, same as you. That. When they suffer, you suffer. When they rejoice, you rejoice. And that is just, that's a beautiful and profound thing. It really is. Uh, and it's its a difficult journey to get there, I think. And I definitely have had I mean, my, my, my moments where I've kind of thrown little temper tantrums along the way. Uh, but when I do get to that point where I can just fully accept someone for who they are, um, I'm better for it. It is not, it's not all roses. And I'm certainly, I mean, I certainly complain and gossip and do all, all the things that, you know, when, when we get frustrated, I participate in that too. It's not, not easy. easy. Yeah. So what Zach would you say, and maybe we've touched on this a little bit, but are some of the biggest challenges of uh, being a young adult in the church today? You know, I, I do think, I think one of the biggest challenges, obviously this is not not as true for me in my own story, but I, I think for a lot of people I've encountered is um, we don't always empower our young adults the best to be leaders. Um, we need to risk on them more. Uh, and the reason I say that is, you know, at, at 24 years old, I came out of seminary, I finished my, my master's in religion um, and this congregation in Southern California who didn't know me at all, didn't know my wife at all, uh, hired us to be full-time pastors, pastors to lead this congregation. They had no idea who we were and we're 24 year old crazy people. 
And they're like, oh, yeah, you'll be fine. <laughs> you can take care of the spiritual condition of this community. <laughs> I look back at that now and I'm like, man, what a risk. What, you know, what just absolute faith to, to risk. So I, I do, you know, and I try this in my leadership often to try to make sure we're investing in our, our and I don't even like the phrase young adult necessarily because it, it's like, no, I'm an adult. I'm a full-on adult. I pay bills. I have a house. I drive a car. I have a job. I pay taxes. So I'm pretty sure I'm adult. So, Fair point. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I'm not, I don't know what qualifies me as young or if that's just meant to like qualify my decisions in case they're naive or immature. Like, oh, don't worry. He's a young adult. He ha- he's not an old adult yet once he gets there. Um, but it's like, you know, I'm a full participant in this body, same as anyone else. And I'm, I, have, I have a voice, same as, as anyone else. And sure, I don't have the same years lived as other people. And so I don't have the same wisdom cultivated based on experiences as other people. But I do have wisdom. And I do have perspective. And I do have ideas. Um, so that's a challenge. Um, I think the, one of the other challenges uh, is not so much for young adults, but with young adults um, is unfortunately, and I'm, I say this including myself in this, is millennials, we grew up in a I want it now world. Um, and we're the first generation to have that. You know, we don't wait for things. We go to the internet, we get it. Um, we we go to a restaurant, we get it. Um, we don't wait. We we're not, we're not good at patience uh, or slowing down. And so often, you know, we'll show up to church and say, Hey, there's a problem here. There's this injustice. Y'all need to change. And when the church can't or doesn't, we're like, all right, I'm out. See you later. Um, and I think we need to, to mitigate that for ourselves. Again, myself included of um, sustainable change isn't Google. Sustainable change takes time. Uh, it, it takes effort and it's complicated. Um, and it's complicated because you have to value everybody that's involved. Um, and so I think that sometimes can be challenging for our generation in particular, because we're, we're used to a fast paced world of get it now. And that's just not sacred community doesn't work that way often. Sometimes it does. I mean, sometimes things move really quick and that's great, but Often it doesn't, but I, you know, we have, <laughs> that's kind of a hard question because we have, we have significant challenges, but at the same time, I'm, I'm really big into empowerment. And so for the young adults that are listening, you know, use your voice. You're not, you're not an immature, naive young adult. You're a full on adult. <laughs> you belong where you are. Use your voice, participate share your opinions and, and share a clear why. Um, tell us why you feel that way and help help change who we are. And that's the other thing that, gosh, this is important that I remembered this because I this is something I share all the time, you know, because people see organizations and things that need to change and it can really quickly grow into this 50,000 foot thing that's overwhelming and you're like, that's just so big. I don't even know where to start, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Here's the thing. 
we will never change without you. You are part of that process to make us better. And so if you see something and you don't like it and you're like, ah, that's just not going to happen. I'm going to, I'm going to go find this somewhere else. You are part of the change. Just as Dave Hines walked me around the lake and said, Zach, you are called, but it's not simply a call to participate. It's a call to redefine. I think every young adult needs to hear that same invitation of you are not meant to simply be a participant in community of Christ. You are meant to be a prophetic voice that helps shape and change the very being of this movement to bring about the cause of Zion in the world. And that is a compelling invitation, not just of we want butts in the pews. We want your voice on issues of justice. We want your voice on issues of peace. We want your voice on issues of belonging and community. And we can't do that ourselves because I am only one person. I only see the world the way I see the world. And until someone shows up and to my face says, Zach, can you see this way? I'm not going to know that. So we need you to participate in priesthood. We need you to participate in business meetings. We need you to show up and challenge the budget that's put right before you of your congregation spending money. However, challenge it, share about it. Um, Not in a mean way. There's no need to be, you know, contentious about anything, but, but, lovingly participate in, in who we are because we we need you. We cannot do it on our own. Don't be afraid to take your field apostle out to lunch and ask him for a check for $300,000. There's a, <laughs> My there's apologies a, to all the Council of Twelve who are going to be bombarded. <laughs> Some people have done that before. Oh <laughs> uh, No, but I think you really raise a good point that in Community of Christ, being involved doesn't necessarily have to mean a passive seat in the pew that we actually can have a voice. And I think, I I think you also bring up a really good point about being pegged as a young adult. And I think, uh, Laura, Lauren, uh, Laura Bolton and I, uh, we kind of touched on this a little bit of like, where's that line from being a youth to a young adult to a real adult, you know, And, and it's, it's fuzzy and it's, it carries with you, uh, you know, kind of some street credibility, if you will. In Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, so, so if you are being pegged as a young adult, don't be uh, fearful of actually getting involved and getting your voice in the conversation um, and get your hands dirty a little bit. Cause I think that that's what the church needs. Well, and that's, you know, that's the thing, like two quick things and I'm sorry, I keep like bouncing around. I apologize, but two oh, quick things. Um, one, I really hate the phrase when, when people stand up and talk about our youth and they say the, the youth are the future of the church. Nonsense. You are the church now here and now in this denomination, when you become a confirmed member of community of Christ, you have full voting, good standing responsibility as a disciple in the community of Christ. So if you're eight years old, if you're 12 years old, if you're 60 years old or 80 years old, it does not matter your voice and vote counts equal as anyone else. And that's a powerful thing. Our youth, our young adults are not the future. They are the present here and now. That's really important. The second thing is about our own history. Our movement was started by a 14-year-old praying, right? Like the Kirtland Temple, the largest building at the time in 1834 in Ohio, when it was being put together, it was being put together by young adults, 
20 and 30 somethings who had no idea what they were doing, simply trying to build this place that represented a deep sense of call inside themselves. Like our movement is a movement of young adults. So I, you know, I, I use that phrase because it's just what we say in our language, but like, it, it is not meant to be a dismissal. It is not meant to be, you know, this, this qualifier of a whole group of people. Jesus was a young adult. <laughs> um, so we have, we have power and capacity and, you know, tremendous idea and we should use that. And it's part of our history. It's part of our story. Um, we are not the future. We are the present. I'm almost a little embarrassed to admit this, but I never thought about it that way. But you are absolutely right on both Community of Christ history as well as the greater Christian movement. It was started and carried on the backs of quote unquote young adults, which is really yeah. significant. <laughs> yeah. A, a few years ago, I was, I had just become a mission center president and I was speaking on an Easter Sunday and I got the, you know, I got this really hoity toity fancy introduction before I spoke and it ended with, and can you believe it? He's only 30 years old. And, and so I stood up to preach and I said, just as a reminder, I am the same age Jesus was when he got started. <laughs> so, you know, like, like, yeah, I'm 30. I'm not a moron. I, you know, I like, I don't know like what the qualifier is meant to be, but I, I don't have gray hair yet. I guess that's a thing, but just because I'm young doesn't mean I, I don't know what I'm doing or I, I don't have anything to offer to the conversation. Yeah. A really important thing for, both the quote unquote young adults and quote unquote old adults, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So I guess Zach, uh, let's talk about the hope that you have for either community of Christ or the church, however you want to define that. What gives you hope as we move forward into the future together as a community? Yeah, I have a tremendous amount of hope. I wouldn't be doing what I do if I, felt hopeless in it, or if I didn't see, you know, a bright future ahead for who we are. Um, but it, it does require a reimagining of what success means and what success looks like. Um, really what gives me the most hope is all the small expressions of community of Christ around the world, not big mega events or experiences that grab the attention of media or, you know, even get shout outs on social media, but the small things that we never hear about that change lives every day when someone shows up to give blessing to someone else in the hospital. Um, When one family is invited to another family's home and eats dinner around the table. Um, When, when friends gather at a coffee shop, simply to love one another. These are community of Christ moments, in particular for millennials, even millennials who have largely left the the church in terms of worship on Sunday morning, you know who they return to time and time again at coffee shops and in homes to break bread together? It's their camp friends. It's their church friends. It's the people who who they identify, you know, in community of Christ as as their family. And so I don't think the future of the church lays 
in this vision of filled up sanctuaries on street corners and neighborhoods. It may for some congregations in some places, and that's great. But I really believe that the future of Commune of Christ is this broad, vast network of relationship that finds expression in dining rooms and family rooms and coffee shops and restaurants and libraries and community centers and parks. Um, These small gatherings of dedicated disciples who decide to be vulnerable with one another in authentic and intentional ways uh, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that is transformative. Um, Sometimes we'll look like partnerships with other ecumenical and interfaith organizations, and sometimes we'll look like partnerships with nonprofits or NGOs, and sometimes will look like just itself, um, a group that takes care of, you know, three or four homeless people around where they gather, or a group that partners with a food bank to feed hundreds. But the idea of hope that comes from these small expressions of disciples, for me, you know, is exciting. And I think it's important to just mention, like, I actually believe the future of the church is a returning of the church. And what I mean by that is it's not going to be in community of Christ. We use the phrase new expression all the time. What's the new expression going to be of community of Christ? I actually don't think there's going to be a new expression. I think there's going to be a returning to acts Two, uh, a returning to this idea of house churches where committed disciples show up to be vulnerable with one another and talk about what God is up to in their life and in their community. And um, I actually think that's what the early restoration movement was about. How do we get back to Acts 2, being, you know, in each other's homes and sharing the good news of Jesus with one another? And so I'm excited because I think I think the, the future of the church is a returning to uh, an ancient practice of being in community, sacred community. And so for me, what gives me hope is the possibility of this idea that we'll move away from congregational life and move into Christian community. Um, And that's an exciting, exciting idea. And I don't say if anyone hears that, I don't, I don't say that to diminish congregational life. I, it's really a transformation of congregational life to Christian community. It's not a diminishment of what exists. That's a good way I think to reframe it, that it's a returning to acts two, and it's not something that should be resisted or feared. Uh, Not saying that there's not pain um, and trial or a sense of loss involved with that. Uh, What we have always known or always been, you know, that, that feeling of loss, Um, Mm -hmm. but that there is hope. When I think of the church getting back to Christ's mission and, when you really, really break it apart and at the core of it, like you said, it's people gathering in homes without an agenda, without a bulletin, just being seen and heard and fed and loved. And uh, I, I think anytime we as a community can turn towards that original mission of love and acceptance and unbound grace and worthiness, I think that I think that the church will always win if we want to call it a success, you know? 
Absolutely. I mean, well, and that's what, I mean, pre-Matthew 25, Jesus says over and over again, here's your job. Love God, love each other. That's what we need to do. (laughs) And (laughs) somehow that has become complicated in these big, you know, institutional polity systems of churches. Uh, But, you know, it's, it's really not that complicated. And you, you know, as a seminary grad, like the history of Christianity as it, you know, grew and evolved over time and became intertwined with political systems and cultural systems. Like, um, you know, for over a thousand years, large parts of the Christian movement have been trying to return to (laughs) the early church idea of simplicity and care and vulnerability. So, yeah. Good stuff. Zach, is there anything else that you wanted to share that I didn't get to or any last thoughts as we wrap this up? So many, so many things I want to share. We just don't have time. (laughs) No, I, I think that's good. I, I'd be happy to share, but I think I shared plenty. Okay. Well, I'm, kind of super serious about having you on again. I feel like you and I could just both church nerd and yeah. Let's have an ecclesiology conversation. I, yes. I the honestly in the, the research I'm getting in my dissertation has just been, been nuts. Been cool. It's been really, really good. Well, I really am excited to talk to you about it. So we will, we will have to get that scheduled. <laughs> Well, thanks, Zach, for joining us today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Project Sign Podcast. And we will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. Dave Hines.